I hope you have your Bible with you this morning. I hope it's there in your lap. And if you don't have it with you, you shouldn't have to go far to get it. You're going to need your Bibles today. And uh, I'd like to have you turn to John chapter 12. And if you happen to be visiting with us, I hear that we have a few that are. Uh, It is our practice to teach through books of the Bible, the entire book, a verse at a time from the beginning to the end. And we find that that is the best way to allow the voice of God to speak to us through His Word, hearing the entire context of what is being said and taking our time. It does take some time to teach through larger books of the Bible like one of the Gospels, and we've been at this for well over a year. But we find ourselves in the 12th chapter, and against the backdrop of what we just sang, an upbeat, positive-sounding, praiseworthy song of the promises of which God has done for us, who He is, against that backdrop, we open His Word on a quite different mood, a quite different tone. And the contrast here, I hope, will bring to our mind the idea that all those things that we sing about each Sunday, so many things that we're at danger of taking for granted, have its cost. That all the promises of God, His glory and His holiness, are maintained by His judgment on sin and carried out through the death of of his son. So when we pick up in the 27th verse of John chapter 12, we're able to see into the anguish of our Lord Jesus as he is thinking through this hour that is now surely upon him. So let's read our our passage, which is an entire paragraph, and we'll ask for the Lord's help, and then we'll begin our study for the morning. Verse 27, John chapter 12. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word again. And we thank you for this hour that we have to study together. 
your word in community. Lord, may the process of hearing and reading and looking and thinking reveal to us what you have in your word for us to know, to understand, and then obey. We thank you for this church. We thank you for your word, your unchanging word. And we thank you again for our time together. Bless this for your glory. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, Jesus here speaks of his troubled heart. And he does so out loud. Of all the things that went through the mind and the heart and the feelings of the God-man Jesus when he was here with us on this planet. Uh, As John would say... If the books were to contain the whole of it, the earth wouldn't contain the books. But there are times where he speaks of these things. He says these things out loud where we can know. A glimpse into not only the mind, but the feelings of our Savior. And as wonderful as the glorification is, and we're going to use that word a lot today, the the glorification. That is what we're going to use to describe uh, what John simply Describes by this hour. These, this was Jesus' word. The hour that had come for him to be glorified. And involved in all of that is the death, the burial, the resurrection, even the ascension of Jesus back into heaven, having satisfied the, the, the penalty of sin through his own death. All of that is about to take place, even though we've got several chapters to go. But the glorification of the Son of God involves a cross and a brutal death. And for Jesus to think of these things is a troubling matter. In fact, he could not look at the horror of the cross and face it with equanimity. I don't know if you've ever used that word before or even know what it means. But equanimity is the ability... To stay calm and focused and poised with all your thoughts together. Cool, calm, collected, under pressure. Well, this is pressure that we know not of. And what we're looking at is the Son of Man who is the God-Man who is just as much God as God the Father. Looking at what is down the road surely or shortly to come to pass. And it says his soul which we learned from last week. There's a difference between the soul, uh, which is one word, and life, which is another. This is his physical self. His soul is troubled. He goes on to say, what shall I say? That's his question. The first of two here. And it's probably important that we should mind the fact That he said, what shall I say, rather than what shall I do or choose? There's never been question, there isn't any question as to whether or not Jesus is going to do the will of the Father. So he says, what shall I say? And there's two ways to look at this. And this will help us greatly in interpreting what the rest of this paragraph means and how it's structured. There are two ways to look at the next sentence here. And the next sentence is another question, and it is, Father, save me from this hour. There's two options here. One is that 
Jesus is basically raising a hypothetical question which he is shortly to dismiss. Oh, what am I supposed to say here? Save me from this hour? Well, that's the purpose for which I'm here. So it would be raising a hypothetical question which would amount to a prayer which he would never pray because that's not the purpose for which he has come. That's one option. Another option is to look at this as a prayer to his father. Now it's one or the other, and John doesn't specifically indicate through the way the Greek is put together which one this is. So we have to look at it by context. We have to apply what else we know about this hour from other gospel writers and take the best case knowing that it could be either or. But I think, and for this reason, that this is not a hypothetical question because if Jesus is asking this in a hypothetical format and then immediately rejects what he says, then the trouble of Jesus' soul should be instantly resolved, shouldn't it? Think of it that way. Look at the verse again. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Hypothetical question. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. So for him to look at it this way would almost minimize what we see as far as the trouble of his soul. We have ways of doing this. I don't really remember uh, when it was I heard the phrase, it is what it is, used the first time. Uh, It wasn't a long time ago, though I think it's been used for a long time. They're simple words, but I I don't remember it gaining popularity. You hear it often enough now. And what do people use it for? What they use it for is kind of looking at something that they'd rather not as a way of saying, well, what are we going to do? There's nothing we can do about it. It is what it is. Now, I wouldn't dare say that what we're looking at here could be described as, well, it just is what it is. But to look at this as a hypothetical question, it just doesn't seem as though it fits as well as looking at this another way, where this is actually a prayer. When we read it that way, the beginning of what will be settled in the Garden of Gethsemane. There was a moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is described in Luke's Gospel, where Jesus sweats great drops of blood, as it were, where it seems the capillaries in his face under severe stress would begin to break and he would bleed through the pores in his skin. Now, if you look at it that way, my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Suppose he's praying here, Father, save me from this hour, which is something that he had asked, or would ask, rather, in the Garden of Gethsemane, if there's any other way this cup could pass, then let it pass. But, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Almost matches up perfectly, but with, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. 
So if you look at it this way, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Maybe the beginning of what is settled in the Garden of Gethsemane, where all along Jesus is going to obey his Father, but not without anguish and not without trouble. After all, it is the most brutal death or way to die that we know of. So Jesus could no sooner say, in either case, save me from this hour, than he must face his obligation of obedience to his Father's will. So if you want to just take what we've got in verse 27 and, and kind of tuck it away with this statement. This is where the horror of Christ's death is met with the perfection of his obedience. And there's quite a lot of trouble involved in the combination. Get to verse 38. As if to end this prayer... And there's really no doubt as to who's the recipient or what's going on in verse 28. Even if verse 28 is a hypothetical question, which I don't think makes as good a sense as it being a prayer. Father, glorify thy name is certainly a prayer. And we know exactly who it's addressed to, and that is the Father. And immediately after, Father, glorify thy name, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it. So the response to the prayer is an audible voice from the voice of God himself. There are only three instances in the ministry of Jesus where this happened. The other two were at his baptism and then at his transfiguration. And neither of those does John mention. He just mentions this one. And in doing so, We've got to answer the question, what does the voice of God say? And what does it mean? We have what it says, and that's interesting because John is going to tell us that no one understands what was said. All we've got to think is that Jesus understood it. Well, either through inspiration or Jesus telling them later, this is what was said. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. That is to say, he has glorified it thus far. And how would we account for that? Well, the different times Jesus has said this already. Uh, the times Jesus has said that uh, the Father has uh, vouched for him through the miracles and signs he was able to do, giving him the authority to do these signs. Well, that was what he had done thus far. I have in the past glorified my name through the work of the Son. But then it says, I will glorify it again. And this makes the most sense to believe that he will glorify it after his son's death by resurrecting his body from the tomb. Put another way, the heavenly father who has been glorified by the work of Jesus to this point can be counted on to continue that glorification at the conclusion of this hour. So see what happens next. Look at verse 29. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered, others said an angel has spoken to him. So Jesus prays, his soul is troubled. His troubled soul is what prompts his prayer as he prays and speaks to his father. His father answers, Jesus knows what is said. 
John was told and he recorded it, but as far as the people that were standing there, they didn't hear it as such. They wrongly conclude it's either thunder or perhaps the voice of an angel. John doesn't tell us exactly when this took place. Was this right after the triumphal entry? We don't know. It makes most sense, looking at the other Gospels, that this takes place on Monday after he cleansed the temple and after the group of of Gentiles, which were Greeks, came and asked to speak to Jesus. So whichever it is, it's kind of hard to understand who this crowd is made up of. Is it same as the crowd that's mentioned in verse 9 or 12? Or is this a third crowd or, or different altogether? It's hard to know. What we do know, though, is that a number large enough to be called a crowd was standing there and heard this sound and didn't recognize it. And by mentioning it, it seems clear that John thinks that this is important. Um, important enough to record it in Scripture, but enough at least to take care of the idea that maybe they just thought they heard something. Well, no, it was a crowd, and a whole crowd can't be mistaken. They did hear something, they just don't know what it was. Not a whole lot different than uh, when Saul was on the road to Damascus and God spoke to him and changed him from Saul to Paul. There was a group of people with him that day who heard a noise, but they didn't know what it was either. Now, when we move on and we see in verse 30 that Jesus answers them in regard to the voice that they heard that they didn't know what it was. He says to them, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. So that clears up a little bit, but it also leaves with us another dilemma. Why does God send a voice to a group of people who don't know what it means? Why would I write you a letter in a language you don't understand? Or write it backwards or scribble it all up so you can't read it? Uh, the inquiring mind wants to know why give them a message if they don't know what it means well I don't really know the answer to that question specifically as to point it out right here in the text but I think it would be a mistake to just assume that every time God reveals something in scripture or to these men as he's speaking Not every time God speaks do the people who hear it understand it completely at that very moment. I mean, throughout the whole scripture so far, all we've been seeing is that they routinely and and grossly misunderstand and misrepresent just about everything God's been saying. And John has been giving us glimpses, editorial notes, all along the way that after Jesus' death, after his resurrection, after his glorification and ascension, then they put all these things together. So I think it's perfect to understand that even if they didn't get it here, later it's going to make a big difference. Don't you remember the day when Jesus' heart was troubled and he prayed and as soon as he said amen, we heard that noise? And then it makes sense. So it's worth something. It's worth something to Jesus, though he doesn't need the reassurance of his father. But it means a lot more to those who are putting all this together, even 
if they have to do that in hindsight and good grief wouldn't we all agree that understanding the truth of God's word is very much a process line upon line precept upon precept one day more like Christ and less like ourselves than the day before and hopefully the day after so let's pause for a minute because we've covered about half of this and uh at this point, it, it can seem like we've got a table full of things spread out and maybe they're all in a mess. Let's try to organize them and make sense of it because the movement of thought thus far, even going back further than what we've read today into what we covered last week, will really help us understand the point uh, that Jesus is going to make. So if we just rehearse, the arrival of the Greeks in verse 20, that was a week ago, seems to have triggered in Jesus' mind the fact that his appointed hour had come. We read about that in verse 23. And again, we have to think on the human side of Jesus. There are times when there's something ahead on your calendar you, you would rather avoid, and someone says something, or you think of something, or you see something, or you read something, and immediately you're brought to the fact that you've got to go face that which you'd rather avoid and there's an emotion in your, in your body that comes along with it. Adrenaline or worry or dread or whatever. And it seems as though when these Greeks, not Jews, Greeks, are coming to the man who's going to save the entire world, not just the Jews, it seems to trigger in the thoughts of Jesus, the hour is beginning. And he says as much. Because this hour centers around the cross, he's deeply troubled. We got to that in verse 27. But arises to his purpose that the Father should be glorified even in his death. That was verse 28. And after simple, simple but profound prayer, the voice of God is heard audibly, even though no one but Jesus understands it at the moment. But it's enough to alert the reader while we're reading and the people who were standing there of the importance, the significance, the supernatural mile marker, if you want to call it that, that is this moment in time. What does this mean? What is its significance? And from this point, Jesus begins to reveal to them some very important theological truths that are shortly to come to pass. If the group has ears to hear. So here they are. We'll start making points for ourselves. Number one. Remember I said we're going to call this hour. The crucifixion. The, the resurrection. The burial. The passion. The finished work of Jesus on earth. All of that we'll refer to as the glorification of the Son of God. So number one. The glorification of the Son of God is the time for judgment on this world. Look at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. So just think through that. People have come to see Jesus. He's greatly troubled. He begins to explain himself. He prays. There's a sound from heaven. Jesus says, this is for your benefit. Now. The word now almost brings everything to a head. Now, when now? This hour is now. Now is the judgment of this world. 
And we talked a little bit about judgment this past week. If you were here with us on Wednesday evening for our Bible study, we've started doing that over a Zoom connection now. If that's news to you and you'd like to get in on that, uh, call us at the office or, or email us. We'll get you the invite. and We'd love to have you join it. But we're talking about how Jesus teaches through parables. The master teacher uses parables to explain the truths of what the kingdom of heaven is all about. And how many of those parables we discussed actually involve a line in the sand where Jesus is making a judgment call between obedience and disobedience or light and darkness or belief and unbelief or the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of this world. He's here to draw a line in the sand, not to condemn everyone. We've been condemned since the Garden of Eden. But what he's here to do is to make sure we know in no uncertain terms by what means we go from death to life. It's through him. He'll make it very clear as we go through John. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Jesus says it's at this point. Now the time has come. The clock is ticking. This world will be judged. After Jesus Glorification is death, burial, and resurrection. It's completely different. Paul would argue at the Areopagus. The former times of ignorance God winked at. Let me, let me turn to that because it's important enough to read. I marked it out here. This is Acts 17 verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Sounds like a judgment call, doesn't it? Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. That be His Son, the hour has come. And of this He has given assurance to all by, the, by raising Him from the dead. You can't miss it. You can't miss the one by whom all have access to the Father. It's the one who died but is risen again. The judgment of this world is part of the glorification of the Son of God. As the light of the world, Jesus necessitates a division between those whose evil deeds are exposed by His sinlessness and those who have been drawn to embrace the light. You may describe it as those who do not believe and those who do believe. And if you think about it, who else would be qualified? Who else would have the authority? Who else would be worthy to make a judgment call over the entire population of the planet, past and future, as to who lives and who dies? Who gets grace? Who gets punished? It would be Jesus. And it would all take place during His hour. This is Revelation 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, or for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God. They shall reign on earth. This is the setting where the author of John's gospel 
called John the Revelator, an old man in his vision in the throne room of God with angels gathered and the prayers of the saints and a search, an inquiry is being made. Who is worthy to open the scrolls and unleash judgment the likes of which the world has never seen? John weeps because it looks as if there's no one qualified, no one worthy, no one righteous enough to open the seals, to crack open the worst the earth has ever seen. And why would he be emotional at that? Because he doesn't want it to happen? No, because he's afraid it might not happen. And the glory and the holiness of God would not be preserved as such by doing away with, punishing evil as promised all the way back from the Garden of Eden. But then there is this lamb, this one as wounded Jesus, the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world. He's the one worthy to make that judgment. And why? Because he paid for it. He was the sinless man who took upon himself the sins of the world. Let's do another one. Number two. The glorification of the Son of God is the time when the ruler of this world will be driven out. It's right there in in the remainder of the same verse. Not only now is the, the, the world judged, but now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So not only the world itself, but its ruler. And just as the cross represents the judgment of this world, so it represents the defeat of Satan. Satan would be defeated in what would appear to be the very moment of his triumph. If you look at the cross from the perspective of the devil and all that's evil, don't you think that they thought that that was the precise moment of their greatest victory? It wasn't that at all. And this had been planned, and it spans the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. From Genesis, no sooner than the third chapter, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The heel was bruised on the cross, but the head of the snake was crushed in doing so. Revelation, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers, brethren has been thrown down who accused them night and day before God. And these are the saints. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. So when Jesus is lifted up, as he describes, Satan is thrown down. Though the promises span scripture cover to cover, the fundamental shattering of the devil's grip on this earth took place on the cross during the hour for which Christ had come. Every piece we read adds to the understanding of the troubled heart of Jesus. This is all out war against the ruler of this world, which will end in his defeat. And then third, we got three of these. This is the final. The glorification of the Son of God is the means by which he will draw all men to himself. Judging the world and throwing out its ruler also involve drawing those who believe to himself. Verse 32, And I... 
When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. That's another editorial comment by John to help us understand what Jesus is saying. So that Jesus says he will draw all men unto himself. Does that mean that everybody on the planet will be saved? Universalism? No. We've got to be careful with that. We've got to let Scripture interpret Scripture. If we just back the truck up a few verses, Jesus has been talking about those who love their lives here and will lose it in eternity, and those who comparatively hate their lives here, who gain it in eternity. He's clearly telling us that some will go and some will not. So what he's saying is he will draw all the people who are to be saved to himself by means of what he does on the cross. Some are drawn, some are not. Some believe, some don't believe. But all that believe are drawn. And the cross is how it happens. So what is meant here is that all who were to be saved would be saved in this way. With Jesus in their place of punishment. And more specifically, not just Jews alone, but Gentiles from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We've read that in Revelation already. So, all of this comes together. Jesus gives them what we see here is clearly three different aspects of what is shortly to come to pass, which will have eternal ramifications, all being bound up in what he's describing as an hour. What does this crowd do with this new revelation? They're paying attention. This is really old things that are now being fulfilled. But if you think about it, Jesus does this quite a lot. He, he takes something old and he reveals it as new, which is just simply a way of saying all of, of that is this. That really helps us to put it that way. All that stuff really is this stuff. So what does the crowd do with the all of that is now this? Verse 34, so the crowd answered him. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So basically, the crowd, in usual form, begs to differ. They've got questions because what they're hearing from Jesus is not what they've heard or not what they've understood. And since it's different, they want an explanation. They say they've heard from the law that the Messiah will live forever. So what's this about the Son of Man being killed? And here you've got Messiah and Son of Man, and it looks as if they're equating them to be the same thing, at least in the same person. But then, well, wait a minute, if you're going to die, well, you can't be the Messiah because he's going to live forever. So what is this Son of Man thing? Maybe we're mixed up. Explain this to us. They say that the law tells them. And what's interesting is that if you're looking strictly at the law, the first five books, the Pentateuch, there's nothing said about the everlasting nature of the Messiah. Now, there are passages, lots of them. There's several in the Psalms. There's one in Daniel 7. I'll read that to you. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples, nations, and languages 
that they should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Maybe that's what they're talking about. But their last question, who is the son of man, betrays their confusion to the end. As if to say, we thought you said you're the Messiah, but you can't be if you're dead. So tell us about the son of man. And by the way, this is the last mention of any crowd in John's record. That'll kind of be important here in a minute. But Jesus doesn't answer their question directly. It's amazing how many people ask Jesus a question in the Gospels. And how he seldom answers precisely the question that they ask. More often than not, he changes the direction of their thinking. As if not to continue an argument or could continue in confusion, but almost to hit a reset button here. As if to say, forget what you've been thinking. And that was his whole format in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, which is an astounding thing to say. That's basically what's going on here. So Jesus said to them, verse 35... In response to all their questions, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Now, they don't know where they're going. And he's telling them they don't know where they're going. And how to fix that is to walk in the light while they've got it, because they won't always have it. Let them give up their preconceived notions of Messiahship and act on the revelation that Jesus is giving them right now. And their question will be answered. And just to be precise, when he's saying that he is the light and he's only there for a little while longer, Jesus means this to apply to his physical presence. But John has been very good with his double meanings in this. And the whole New Testament gives warning to acting while you have the moment to act. Decide while today is today. Don't reject so great a salvation. That you might have this light is is not always promised. There's an expiration date on it and nobody knows what comes tomorrow. We're not supposed to boast of tomorrow. None of us know what a day will bring. The same seems to be going on here. So Jesus adds, um, walk while you have the light. Why? Well, the man who walks in the darkness doesn't know where he's going. We could stretch that out a while, but I think you probably understand. If you walk in the dark, you're going to fall or trip or hurt yourself. Walking in the darkness is not like walking in the light. And uh, the idea here is that you're never going to understand these things without the light. What seems to be the pattern here is that Jesus is urging them to be faithful with the light that they've got. And sometimes that's a struggle, maybe even a, 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 a frustration in, in church ministry. We need to know this, we need to know this, we need to do this over here, we need to do all these other things. 
when sometimes, even in, in, a, in a period of time like right now, where we've had everything changed around on us, it's, it's, it's more easy to see that perhaps the most important thing is, is to start first in faithfulness to what we already know without asking so many questions that might not even have answers. Sometimes it, it, this is part of raising children. Well, what about this? How about you, you just be obedient to the rules we've got now or work on those other rules when we get to them? Same is true spiritually. Now look at verse 36, because it adds on verse 35, and, and it almost sounds like a repetition. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Now you'd almost expect a, a repetition from the, the previous part. Walk in the light while you've got it. But it's different here. One of the words has been changed. While you have the light, don't walk in the light again. It's already been said, but believe in the light. So what, is, what have we got? What this means is it's not just a question of understanding, but obedience. Put yourself back in the position of the crowd. You've got questions for Jesus. He doesn't answer them specifically. He just says, be faithful with the light that you've got. Walk in it. Use it. Understand it, because you might not always have it. And what you've got and what you understand, believe in it. Obey it. Be faithful to it. So what you've got is not just understanding, but obedience. Not just, okay, I get this, but okay, I'll live by this. I'll trust my life with you according to this. You know, it won't be any easier for these folks after the cross, I think is what is being said here. There might be those who say, okay, I'll wait, I'll see. If he raises from the dead, I've got what I need. Well, there was that parable about a, a, a rich man and Lazarus. and Go back and tell my brothers, no, if somebody comes back from the dead, they won't believe. They've got Moses and the prophets. Be faithful with what you've already got. Walk in what you've already got. Obey what you've already got. Now, for those of you that really like to dig down deep into these words, the best surprise is, is yet unturned, if you don't know about it already. But if you look at these words here, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. There's another change from the second to the third Part of that. And if you're counting it all up, we've got five uses of the word light in two verses. If you're looking for a pattern, I think the pattern is light. Jesus wants to tell us something, and he's using light to tell us. So pay attention to it. But going from these three light phrases in verse 36, the second one says you must believe. And that word believe there is a continual process that matures along the way. You'll need a Greek handbook to figure these out for the, the uses of the Greek words and in the right positions and tenses and all that. That's a continual thing that you do. You're always growing in your belief. Always. It's a process. But the word becoming sons of light 
is actually a once-for-all transaction. That's not by degrees. That's like adoption, where one second you're not adopted, and the second after that you are adopted, where you were dead, but now you're alive, where you didn't believe, but now you do. No, that's kind of progressive. But in other words, what you're told to do is be faithful of what you've got. And what God says he'll do is he'll be faithful to bring those to himself and not lose one single one. That's amazing. Men must believe in Jesus. But Jesus is faithful to save. So what does all this mean? Well, while faith is an activity to be practiced without ceasing, one does not become a son of the light by degrees. So one decisively passes from darkness to light, from death to life. Sons of light are then not merely people with casual interests in light, but people who've been so transformed by the light that their lives are characterized by its substance. You tell me, would Jesus ever use the term sons of light after he said light four other times to describe someone who lives in darkness, who's characterized by darkness? No. They're characterized by light. Characterized by their father. They're a son of the light. And that's taken care by all this obedience and faithfulness to life that they've been asked to walk in while they have it. Now here's where we conclude. Because it's, we've, we've worked through everything that I read earlier. But if you notice, look at your Bibles... The last part of verse 36 is not included in the same paragraph in most translations and study Bibles, but is actually part of the beginning of the next paragraph. I'm looking right here in mine. One paragraph that's titled, The Son of Man Must Be Lifted Up, is split into another paragraph, The Unbelief of the People, and verse 36 is writing the fence there. Half of it's in one paragraph, the other half is in the next paragraph. So let's finish out verse 36. What does it say? When Jesus had said these things, what things? All that about light. All that about judgment. The devil being cast out and drawing all men to himself. After he finished saying these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Now, the only way we can interpret he departed and hid himself from them is to say that Jesus self-consciously withdraws from these people that he was in close proximity to when he said all these things. So having said all that we've said, what do you make of that? I think it's our pattern. It's basically just our, our habit as Christians, to read over warnings like this. Warnings like in the first part of verse 36, where we're told to believe in the light while we've got it. And certainly people who don't believe, I think their habit is to do the same thing. I, I, can, I can respond to the light anytime I need to. And if I got something I got to go do over here, it should be called the darkness. I'll just come back to the light and it'll all be fine. 
even though routinely the scriptures in so many different ways say the same thing. And I've heard people, I've even been asked questions, people come to me before I worked in a, a church just because they knew I was the son of a pastor who was sitting at work and they want to know about this thing called sending away your day of grace. And where is that in the Bible? I said, well, I don't think it's in there. I'll go look and I'll come back. And specifically, the idea of there is a day where grace is used up on you. You've sent it all away. You've lost all your chances. And Jesus is not going to bother with you. You haven't wanted him for a long time. So he's going to let you have exactly what you want and leave you alone. Now, the Bible implies the idea of it being too late. But this guy asks, when does that happen? And have I passed or send away my day of grace? And my answer to him was, if there is such a thing, there's no way you'll ever know. Because God's certainly not telling. He's the one who paid for his grace. He dispenses it at his will. He can forgive you because the sins have been paid for. Depends, I suppose, on your repentance. There's a very odd conversation because the, the doom that seemed to hang over this guy who really thought he was outside the reach of God's grace, which I tried to tell him isn't for him to say. But I think this passage stands as a warning, even though we, <laughs> we're real good at putting off these types of things. Well, I'll get right when I grow up. And it could easily be as done with an older man than a younger person. And really, the scariest statistics of all of them to me are the ones who leave the homes their Christian parents raised them in and good churches that taught the Bible and go off to school and never come back. Almost as if they had their light, but they have distanced themselves from that light and it just might not be there anymore. That's for the Lord to say. The warning is for everybody, specifically these people, but it is for us as well. But here's the question I think the, the chapter itself, at least this verse, ends with. And it's the one that we end on today. Is the last part of this verse, where Jesus purposefully hides himself from these people, is this not Jesus acting out? The very warning that he has just pronounced. There was a group of people. He urged to use the light. Walk in the light. Believe the light. Become sons of light. Because that light will only be here for a little while. And then they didn't see him again. So if he could do that for them. I suppose he could do that for anyone. Which I think puts all the more emphasis from a time spent together in a live-streamed church service. The point of the passage today is walk in the light while you have the light. Use what you've got. Be faithful to what it is. You've got questions, keep working in the light. The Lord will answer those things. But it not only requires your understanding, but it requires your obedience to believe in him. Do you believe? That's what John's all about.
These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in his name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, this was a lengthy passage. It took us our our time and our thinking to get through it. The warning is stern, if not scary. Lord, you've judged the world. You've thrown out the devil and you've You've put together the means to draw us to yourself. It all took place on the cross. Do we believe that? Not just in our heads, but down to our obedience. Is it a game changer? Does it make a difference in what we do, what we say, how we think, how we act? Or are we in that group that just loves our lives here and now? Lord, may your spirit impress upon us the terror of losing our lives for eternity. Lord, urge us through your spirit to take full advantage of the marvelous light you've given us. In America, with all our Bibles in our churches, we have a embarrassment of riches as far as the light goes. But Lord, in the places where we live, those that have the light, may we shine so that the Greeks, the others, if they see you at all, they see you as crucified and having changed our lives. Lord, thank you so much for this church. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for our family. We ask this in your name. Amen.